0: Don't worry, these next two hours are gonna fly by. (laughs) Uh, One of the questions that caught my ear yesterday at the men's conference was about our reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now the question was, if the Holy Spirit departed from you, departed from your ministry, how long would it take to notice? I had to laugh a little bit because I knew if the Holy Spirit was not empowering and guiding me, it's gonna become very evident very fast. I don't have the natural gifting or the experience to carry myself along. So won't you please join me today in pleading for the Holy Spirit uh, to bless these words today. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to share your word today. God, despite my best efforts, I know that I will come nowhere near expressing the greatness of what is revealed in your word. So I ask that you show yourself strong in my weakness. And somehow speak something to your people this morning that is useful in building up your church. By a work of your your spirit, transform and renew our hearts and minds. God, may we be a church that worships you in spirit and in truth. And may you be enthroned and lifted up and glorified in the praise and the adoration of your saints. Amen. Now, it's Communion Sunday. And right at the very heart and core of the worship and the community of the early church, was the expression and the celebration of communion. Now, Jesus himself instituted the practice of communion at the Last Supper. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance, we continue in that practice today. And here at Faith Church, on the first Sunday of each month, we remember the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus with the symbols, bread and wine. Now, depending on what church tradition you come from, there may be a certain word attached with what we're doing today. Maybe it's the Eucharist. Maybe it's the Lord's the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And no matter what the tradition, commune is a practice that is so obviously spelled out in Scripture that almost all churches that wear the name of Christ still practice it today in one form or another. And almost all churches count communion among what we call the church sacraments. But what's a sacrament? You know, I kind of like to geek out on words a little bit. Church speak or Christianese is not my native tongue. So when I first started taking church seriously, I had to kind of piece together what people were talking about if they used words like sacrament, because that was a bit of a mystery to me. Now, if it's a mystery to you, I want to take a moment just to explain the word sacrament. Now, sometimes as words pass between languages and cultures, over time, multiple words combine or evolve to express a concept. And the the sacrament's a good example of that. Sacrament comes from two ancient words, sacer, which means sacred, and musterion, which means mystery. So the definition is in its composition. The word sacrament means sacred mystery. Now, it's easy enough to define, but it's hard to understand. And you're going to have to bear with me because I am not going to be able to fully unravel the sacred mystery that is bound up in these silly little cups that we use for communion. But I've been praying that I can share something with you today that will shed some light and give us a greater understanding of the sacred mystery. And as, we have, and as we have a greater understanding, we're going to have a greater capacity for awe and wonder and worship to what these cups point to. And that's the new covenant Salvation through the broken body and spilled blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the first step in appreciating why communion is so important is to look at its roots in the Old Testament. Now, the same principle applies all throughout Scripture. We can't understand and fully embrace the New Testament without understanding the Old. It's kind of like watching the sequel of a movie before you watch the first one. You can usually figure out what's going on. You can get the gist of things, but you're going to miss a whole lot of con- um, a whole lot of context. If you don't establish how the story began, we can't fully understand who Jesus is and what he was doing at the Last Supper without first looking back to the Old Testament celebration of Passover. In fact, during the Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples met in an upper room, and they were there to celebrate the Passover together. It says in Matthew twenty six seventeen, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So now the question becomes, what is the Passover and why did Jesus celebrate it? Now, to find out more, we have to go back in time to the year of about 1400 B.C. to a very familiar story. Excuse me. Uh, God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they were under the oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh would not let God's people go to go worship. The Israelites were slaves, and Pharaoh did not want to lose his cheap labor force. Now, this sets the stage for God to show his mighty power through a series of plagues. And the last and most serious was the plague on the firstborn. The firstborn of every family of Egypt, all the way from the house of Pharaoh down to the animals out in the field, would die. But the Israelites were spared because God gave them a special provision. He gave some really, really weird instructions for them to follow. He told the Israelites to take year-old male lambs without defect, and then each was to slaughter this lamb at twilight. And then God told them to take some of the blood of the lamb Smear it on the doorposts of their houses. And then God says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord a lasting ordinance. Now, of course, that's exactly what happens. The Israelites are spared. The firstborns of Egypt aren't. So the destroyer, it passed over the houses of those marked with the blood of the lamb. But what in the world is this all about? How does blood save anyone from destruction? Well, Hebrews 9.22 answers that. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how God ordained it. And the shed blood was a sign for the destroyer to pass over the houses of the people that God had marked out for forgiveness. Now, I admit this is some really strange stuff, especially if you're new to the church. Sacrifices that take away sins, bloods, blood of the lamb? Now, it's hard to get a handle on that. And I wonder what it must have been like for the Israelites the night of the first Passover. So let's put ourselves in their place and see if we can relate their situation to how we think today. Now, if you, you yourself got the instructions from God about what to do, about putting the blood of a lamb on your doorpost, I think it'd be very easy to say, sure, I believe in God. I saw, I saw what he did. I saw the plagues. I saw the deliverance. I know that God is all powerful and my money is on the fact of us getting out of Egypt. I trust God for that. But I don't know about this lamb thing. I mean, that's really weird, isn't it? I mean, how can a lamb die in my place? I get that I'm not perfect, but... You don't understand. I've suffered enough. I've suffered enough to make up for any bad that I've done myself. I've done enough good. I've lived a good life, but the good, it outweighs the bad. I've cleaned myself up and I believe in God. That should be enough for him. I don't need the blood of the lamb. I'll pay my own way with my own blood and sweat and tears. You know what? Forget the lamb. I'm just going to smear some blood on my own blood on the doorframe. That should be enough. Well, if that were you, would you sleep well that night? as the angel of destruction was approaching? And now fast forward today. Is today any different? Are you looking at salvation as something you get by believing in God and doing some good deeds? Can you sleep well believing that you have dealt with your sin outside of the way God prescribed it? Are your own deeds good enough? Now we should live a life that's full of good deeds. We know that. But those good works are the result of our salvation. They are the overflow from the work of grace that God has done in our lives. Good deeds are not piling up something on on the balance of a cosmic scale that hopefully will tip in our favor one day and earn us a favorable afterlife. That's not how it works. And it's easy to fall into the mistake of thinking that trying to pay our way into heaven is something that would be pleasing to God. God is good. Therefore, he likes good deeds, right? Well, that's true. But when it comes to earning our salvation, it becomes an affront to God. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shriveled up like a leaf and like a wind, our sins sweep us away. Now note the last phrase of that verse, our sins sweep us away. This verse tells us regardless of how how many good deeds we do and how good they are, Our sin invalidates them. What we need is not more good deeds. We need to have the removal of our sin. We are lost and dead in our sins. We can't take that sin away ourselves. It's kind of like trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's just not possible. We need a sinless Savior savior to do it for us. Now, just like God provided a means for deliverance from slavery in Egypt, he has provided a remedy for us. A means for deliverance from sin and the wrath that it occurs. Now, John the Baptist links this Passover lamb with Jesus Christ when he spots him coming. He says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, more on how Jesus is the lamb of God in just a minute. But for now, let's go back to to 1400 BC to the book of Exodus. And after Passover, the Israelites, they leave Egypt and there's a large portion of the Old Testament that is recorded history of the Israelites failing miserably to represent God well and the subsequent discipline that followed. There are endless sacrifices that the priests have to perform on behalf of the people to atone for that guilt. It's really a mess. And some may even go as far to say that the old Testament God is a God of wrath and judgment. And the new Testament God is all about grace and love, but that's not accurate. The God of the old Testament and the God of the new are one in the same God has been and always will be a God God of wrath against sin because God is holy. And God always has been and always will be a God of grace, even in the Old Testament. Now, here's what I mean about grace in the Old Testament. Now, grace means undeserved favor in this context. God is clear that there is nothing that the Israelites did that deserved or earned his favor. Nothing about the Israelites moved God to choose their nation and deliver them from Egypt. Instead, God chose Israel simply because he is a loving God who shows favor and keeps his promise. Now, one of those promises was a covenant that God made to Abraham. Abraham was the father of that nation. God told them that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And their delivery out of Egypt was part of God's keeping that promise to Abraham. He was showing undeserved favor to Abraham's family. Deuteronomy 7, 6 is one of the verses that illustrates God's grace towards the Israelites. It says, "'The Lord your God has chosen you "'to be a people for his treasured possession. "'Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, "'it was not because you were more in number "'than other people that the Lord chose you, "'for you were the fewest of people, "'but it was because the Lord loves you "'and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers "'that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand "'and redeemed you from the house of slavery.'" from the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God chose them even though they weren't great or important. And furthermore, God did not choose them on the basis of their behavior. If you're familiar with your timeline of the Bible, you notice that God chose Israel way back in the day, before he even gave them the law on Mount Sinai. God chose to lead his people out of Egypt before he gave them a formalized system of ethics, before he gave them the law. So grace and deliverance was not contingent on Israel being a great or godly nation. Deliverance came to Israel because the Lord God is a gracious and loving God who keeps his promises. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, there are plenty examples of God dealing very harshly with rebellious people, whether individuals or with nations, but there were always warnings. There was always ways that people from around the nations could join in. Provisions were made for them to join into God's family. Between the Old and New Testament, God is the same gracious, promise-keeping God, and he is the same God that still has justified wrath against sin. But now, at the Last Supper, we are approaching a time when that grace will unfold in new and wonderful ways. The cup of God's wrath would still be poured out, but now it's going to be channeled in a new direction. And what Jesus said at the Last Supper about a new covenant is the central point on which both the Old and New Testaments hang. At the Last Supper... Jesus takes the cup with the wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, remember, they were very familiar with the sacrificial system. They knew all about spilling blood. And Jesus mentioning blood poured out would have brought to mind those endless sacrifices. But Jesus is now telling them that there is a new covenant in his blood. Don't miss the significance of that. It's a huge turning point in the history of God's redemptive plan for his people. Now, as Jesus is celebrating the Passover, he is infusing it with new meaning. He is assigning the elements of the meal with a new and much richer context. All throughout the Old Testament, bread was a symbol of God's provision for his people. And wine was a symbol of joy that, that the uh, members of the new messianic kingdom would experience. So we have bread as a provision and wine as joy. And he was claiming that it was his broken body that was God's provision, just like the bread. And the Israelites had failed miserably to keep up their end of the previous covenant that God would made with them after they left Egypt. And now a new covenant was being prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. It says the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Now, God goes on to say that because of the new covenant, that he will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus was claiming that his blood was the admission price into this new covenant of forgiveness. He takes the cup of God's wrath, which is by rights ours to drink. Just imagine all the sins that we've committed just filling up that cup of God's wrath. And instead of us drinking it like we should, he takes it from us, he drinks it to the dregs, and he hands us a new cup a cup of joy, a cup of grace. And now when we do this in remembrance of him at communion, it helps us to remember that he drank the cup of wrath that we all deserve. So that was the past. And now for the present, when we remember that we are no longer under the wrath of God because Jesus drank that bitter cup on the cross, we preach the good news to ourselves. We need to do this often because we forget We're prone to wander and we forget things like this. Sometimes we have these great mountaintop experiences with God, but then we come down into the valley of the daily grind and we drift. Jesus knows what we like. He knows how fickle we are. Jesus knew that his disciples would forget huge swaths of his teaching, just like we do today. So he gives us a way to combat that forgetfulness. He tells us, do this in remembrance of me. It's almost like he's saying, hey, whatever else you do, don't forget this. Remember this. Mark it down. Don't neglect it. Jesus is carving out a regular appointment time for us. And because of that, this is a time that's set apart. It's a time that's holy. It's made holy because it's a command commanded meeting point between God and his people. Now, we are meeting here and now with the living God. We are being continually washed and cleaned from all our sins by the sinless blood that was spilled in our place. Now, this is the kind of forgiveness that changes how we relate to one another in the here and now. It's the kind of forgiveness that can restore a marriage like Graham and Stephanie's, and it's the kind of forgiveness that can restore a holy God to a sinful people like us. As we approach the communion table today, Paul tells us to examine ourselves. We need to see whether we are treating one another in accordance with the way that Jesus has united us. If you are united to Christ and I'm united to Christ, then we are united to each other. It says in First Corinthians ten, seventeen, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. By participating together in the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge the fact that we are one body in Christ, one with each other, and one with responsibilities of forgiveness towards one another. Paul goes on to say in Corinthians. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment unto themselves. But don't get hung up with self-condemnation here. Paul is not telling us that we have to be worthy to partake in communion. He's telling us to partake in a worthy manner. The communion table is a place for sinners. It's not a place for Christians who just think they've had a good week. It's a place for Christians to be reminded that Jesus is our provision and he is our joy. Paul wasn't excluding sinners from the table, but he did criticize the Corinthians for the way in which they observed communion. In verse 29, the phrase without discerning the body of Christ has a dual meaning here. In one sense, it's about considering unity and forgiveness within the church body in the way I explained And discerning the body also refers to actually believing that Christ's body was broken for you. If you don't believe that, if you're here as a seeker, I do hope that you prayerfully consider it. But if you don't, if you don't believe, it would be disingenuous for you to join with believers in the celebration of the Lord's table. And 1 Corinthians 11 warns against it. It says, you will drink and eat judgment upon yourself if you eat without discerning. Now, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he's also telling us to remember his coming kingdom in the future. At communion, we remember not only the lamb of God and the sacrifice he has made for us in the past, we remember that we presently at this very moment are living under the new covenant with provisions of grace for today. We also look to the future. We remember what has been promised, but not yet fulfilled. R.C. Sproul says, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is not just a sign of what has happened already, But it's God's sign, a seal, a promise of what will happen in the future. Revelation 19 talks about a great marriage feast that is to come. It is the consummation of God's redemptive plan for his people. It says, I heard a sound, what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So we see a bride and a groom reunited. The spotless bride in Revelation is the church, cleansed and made holy, and the groom is Christ. Jesus looks forward to the fulfilling of this during the Last Supper. In Luke 22:14, he says, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now the bread and the cup point to a time when with great joy at the consummation of his kingdom, we, his church, his bride made perfect, will join him again and share with that bread and that cup. Now, as the worship team makes their way up, let's take some time to reflect on the past, the present, and the future. Let's reflect on his past sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf, that bitter cup of wrath that he drank in our place. Let's reflect on the present community that is offered to you with God and with his people because of that sacrifice. And let's look forward to that perfect union with God that we have because of the blood of the new covenant. Now, if you didn't get a communion cup on the way in, uh, Randy, and there's an usher in the Bealey Center who will um, bring one to you. All you got to do is raise your hand and he'll come over to you during the song. And after we take some time to examine ourselves, I'm going to turn it over to Dick Bradstreet, one of our elders in the Bealey Center, and he will administer the elements there. But right now, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for taking the wrath that our sins deserve upon yourself, Lord. God, you were forsaken on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be. Thank you for carrying our sins to the grave. And thank you for sharing the power of your resurrection life with us. Thank you that we are born again in communion with you and with your church. And thank you for a secure future, a promise of heaven, a bride reunited with her groom. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice that does not know you as the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, I pray that you would give them faith to accept that invitation. It's found in the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Amen.